Welcome into In This Corner with Brian Campbell. This is the professional wrestling edition of the podcast. I am handsome Nick Costos, and I had a weird moment in my life earlier this week where I actually had an inner monologue where I was trying to determine whether or not I wanted to wear a compression shirt, a workout shirt, out to a bar to meet women. That's how enamored I am with my physical appearance, that I wanted to wear gym clothes out to the bar to try and meet women. And do you guys know why that is? It's because underneath this facade, this handsome, tanned, cool exterior, lies a petty, insecure little man who needs your validation to get through the day. On Instagram, at the Costos, T-H-E-K-O-S-T-O-S, please follow me. Hit me with some likes so when my head hits the pillow at night, I can feel a little better about my miserable, pathetic, tiny existence. And as always, I am joined by my tag team partners, starting off with the guy who is literally shrinking before our very eyes. He is He's on the diet. The workout plan is killing it. I looked at him this week, and I said, it looks like half of you is gone. He looks great. He feels great. And damn it, he is great. He is the Silver King, Adam Silverstein. Hey, now. And as always, I am also joined by the man whose name is on the marquee. Let's go. He is the icon. Come on. He's the main event. Dig it. He is the showstopper. My man. He is the whole effing show. One time. He's also the birthday boy. Happy 39th birthday to our guy. Happy birthday, buddy. Bring it. He (laughs) is the Brian Campbell. Oh, yeah. Birthday boy, BC. Tell the listeners what's on the podcast. 39 never felt so young and washed and good, but do yourselves a favor, of course, and get some of this. Look, I don't even need to waste my time telling you the size of the show that you're about to hear. It's definitely a big man show tonight. Once again, as the ITC invades your ear hole with another tasty dose of that performance enhancing audio. Look, we've got plenty to talk about from the week that was in WWE. We've got enough NJPW G1 Climax talk to make you do just that. We'll also be digging deep into the archives to relive the Doomsday Cage match that threatened to end Hulkamania and nearly ended pro wrestling itself in the process. I kid you not. But before we complete our mission of taking your free time hostage and preparing that needle for insertion, let me hand the keys back to the most passionate man in North America, the man who makes medium fit so good. Here comes the right swiper. He's a big fan of Z Gangsta. (laughs) That was awesome. I may have reached climax there while you were sort of giving that introduction. That was awesome from our guy, the cousin Yuri, the Victor Conti, the King Balco, the first of this performance-enhancing audio, the Brian Campbell. And as always, gentlemen, we get things started with the main event. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the main event of the evening. I got to tell you, I think we talked about this last week. We need to come up with better sound. Like, it's going to reach the point where it's going to be funny for us. We may as well just keep doing it. It'll turn into a bit. But we need some better sound. It takes too long to come in. It's like Howard Finkel from 1978. I think that we can do better with the sound or not. Maybe we won't. Maybe we will roll with it. Guys, the first part of our triple main event this week It's something we saw on SmackDown Live. No, it's not NJPW, but it features someone who used to run NJPW, Shinsuke Nakamura and John Cena. Guys, those two will face off next week on SmackDown. Cena and Nakamura with Brian Campbell. 
the winner facing Jinder Mahal for the WWE Championship at SummerSlam. Yeah, so this is feel spot activated right at the idea of this. And I didn't even watch SmackDown Live live this week, right? Celebrating my birthday. But my my feel spots were, were activated from afar by so many people texting me, DMing me, coming at me. You got to see what happened on SmackDown. People being like, basically like, I know you, I know that you're popping right now. I know there's Mark Mill coming out of your, out of your pores. I know that you're just covered. Like, I mean, getting almost gross with it. They had me up to the point where I thought Cena turned heel. I mean that I was legitimately ready to turn on the TV and find out that Cena turned heel. Look in the end, a little bit of a letdown compared to that, but obviously you're going to pop at the idea of Cena Nakamura as a lead-in to the more predictable future of what we think, which would be John Cena, Captain America, and Jinder Mahal at SummerSlam. I want to tell you what I really liked about how this played out. Was Cena comes out arrogantly like he's the matchmaker, like he is uh, able to just walk out and do what he wants, like he can turn back the clock Sunday night with a horrifically bad and out-of-place flag match against Rusev, which is exactly what he did. And to have Daniel Bryan, the general manager, come out and kind of put him in his place. Good moment, because that's what we were all were thinking. Like, you just have to all you have to do is walk in an arena now and get a, get a, get a championship match. What is this, Lana, for the last month? I mean, <laughs> it, that part stunk. Yes, obviously, I pop for the fact that on a random Tuesday night next week, it's now must-see TV to see John Cena, the captain of WWE for the last 15 years, against Nakamura, the pride and joy of NJPW, making a big splash. Yes. There is a part of me, guys, though, that feels a little bit like you've abused me for a while now, SmackDown Live. But here, send me flowers next Tuesday and, and, and tie me into a ratings grab for one match when I feel like I know who's going to win that match already. So I don't want to be that cynical guy right here. Who but do you think is going to win the match? Like, Share that with us. Who's going to win? You know, I, I feel like we're going Cena Mahal. It just makes a lot of sense. So would I be happy for a one-off on regular free TV? Absolutely does feel a little bit like, though, you know, we've we know we've been reading Twitter. We know you guys have hated everything that's going on in SmackDown for the last six weeks to, to six months. And it just culminated Sunday night. So let's do our best to put a quick bandaid on it, throw you out there next Tuesday night and, and, and you know, and give you a sort of a one off. Like, here's the flowers for giving you the black guy. So that's sort of I felt like the beaten down girlfriend. I'm going to be really honest. with you. Yes, I, I said this on the instant analysis battleground pod, uh, pod on Sunday night. It's like Stockholm syndrome. It's like you love your captor here. It's like, no, like it wasn't good. Battleground was bad. That being said, I thought SmackDown was pretty good. And, you know, I've got a little bit of the Heath Ledger Joker character in me because I like to watch the world burn. And part of me really hopes that Cena goes over clean in this match because I want to see the internet wrestling community burst into flames if John Cena, if and when Cena, goes over in this match. The one thing that I will disagree with you on... I don't think that it's obvious that Cena's going to win this match because I think it's booked to be fairly obvious, and that's always been, you know, the thought process. And I'll lead you through. I'm watching SmackDown Live last night, and the whole time Jinder Mahal's cutting this promo, I'm in my head going, dun-dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun-dun. Like, when is Cena's music going to hit? Because you knew it was going to happen, and then he comes out. But the wrinkle was introducing Nakamura into the equation, right? So the fact that... It was so obvious that they were doing Cena gender, and now they have thrown you this massive curveball with Nakamura, a guy that they've gone out of their way to protect. Say what you want about the booking of him and the character. They've protected Nakamura thus far. I don't know if they're going to feed Nakamura to Cena next week, so I legitimately don't know what the hell's going to happen. I wouldn't be surprised if Cena won clean. I wouldn't be surprised 
if Nakamura won clean, and I wouldn't be surprised if we got a screw job finish of some kind, it would probably be Shinsuke getting screwed, then we get Cena, Jinder Mahal, at SummerSlam. So, Bri, I do disagree with you on that point here. I don't think it's as obvious as it being Cena, the clear-cut definite winner. Well, I'm beaten down, but I'm beaten down for a reason, a big reason that we're obviously going to get talking about soon on the show. But the NJPW cloud, I got to be honest, it hovers over everything that we're seeing in wrestling on WWE this week. It was a part to me why Battleground was not only so bad because it was so bad, but it tasted extra sour and and mailed in because of what I was watching all morning, what I was watching on sneak breaks away from my family on Sunday, running into the bathroom with an iPad like it's pornography, (laughs) trying to catch up on a, uh, you know, a Bushi Ishii match. It is wrestling porn, to be fair. It's wrestling pornography. No doubt about it. So we're judging, I'm judging it against that this week. So I'm sort of jaded. And like I mentioned, it sort of feels a little bit like a, a, a bait and switch type of thing. But what it is overall, and the, the full episode was strong. It, it, to me, it felt like a break in the, in the gra- you know, a line in the sand, so to speak, to say, yes, we have mailed in the crap out of SmackDown since WrestleMania. You can really go back and connect the dots since WrestleMania. I just don't know if this means we're going in the right direction. Silver King, you've got some ideas on why it's been so bad. Did this feel like a new dawn is opening up for SmackDown Live to you? Yeah, I think you guys are being a little too hard. I mean, that was not a good episode of SmackDown. That was a great episode of SmackDown for reasons that we will talk about later in the show, as Nick uh, you know, alluded to. But, guys, it entertained me from start, literally the very start of the show, to the very end of the show. It was very good. I'm with it you. It was a very it good was, show. It was good. And yeah. I think it shows you, look, a lot of people overestimate or underestimate, I think, actually, the impact of general managers and commissioners. But when you have guys that are so over with the crowd, like, like Shane McMahon and Daniel Bryan, they can make a legitimate impact in the quality of a show. And it could be as simple as making a match or just their presence walking out onto the stage and not letting a segment like Asina Mahal be, oh, we kind of expected that, and giving it that extra boost. It wasn't just that he's going to fight Nakamura. It's that Daniel Bryan came out and made that match and gave Cena a little punch in the gut. Hey, man, who do you think you are? You've been gone for a long time. I think the Cena-Nakamura thing is wholly unexpected. I think we all agree with that. I'm really intrigued to see how it'll play out. Like Nick said, I could legitimately see it going either way. But ultimately, I don't see how Mahal Nakamura at SummerSlam sells anything. It just, there's nothing there. Um, You have a terrible wrestler against one of the best wrestlers in WWE. It doesn't make much sense. I could see Cena going to SummerSlam and losing to Mahal much easier than I could see Nakamura going to SummerSlam and winning because there's no way. There's no way they're going to let Nakamura go over Cena and then lose to Mahal. That's just not going to happen. I, I, yeah, I, 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 I kind of agree with that. And um, as far as it concerns the, uh, the Nakamura gender part of this here, um, I think the one thing I disagree with Silver King on that is the, the rub with that Nakamura gender is like the coronation of Nakamura, right? And we have seen that crowd, especially with NXT TakeOver, um, the weekend of SummerSlam, are white hot for Nakamura. If, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were the ones that really started the singing his theme song, right? Um, I think the, so. The Brooklyn crowd. So I yeah. think that you will have a white... So if, let's say, they do Nakamura versus Ginger and they bury it on... The, maybe it's the opening match or it's like the third or fourth match on the card building up to the main event. That's basically like everyone knows Nakamura is going to win and it becomes like... 
an 8 to 15 minute party because you know it's coming and then you get the coronation of Nakamura as WWE champion. Maybe AJ Styles doesn't win the United States Championship or excuse me, doesn't loses the US Championship. More on that coming up in a moment. I'm so confused because they've done so many title changes here. But I think that's maybe the sell job as it concerns a potential nakamura Jinder Mahal main uh, match at SummerSlam. But guys, we, we got to wake up, though, to the fact that they've conditioned us to believe we're getting AJ Styles and Nakamura at SummerSlam. We're still getting AJ Styles and Nakamura yeah. at SummerSlam, which sort of connects the docs. That's my I point. I don't know if we are. And I don't know if off, we are. Will I enjoy a one-off of Cena knock? Yes, of course. Will I know that uh, that they're reaching around, so to speak? Yes, I'm, I'm being reached around, okay? I'm being roached <laughs> around. I'm being reached, okay? I mean, like, I, I can already hear it. Uh, it's happening. I'm sorry, you know? I mean, there's this... I don't like that feeling. I don't like where SmackDown has been. Maybe it's kind of taken me a few weeks and months to wake up in this book. It sucks now. It it has sucketh. It was on friggin' fire to end 2016, on fire leading into WrestleMania. It's just, how do you ruin this problem? I mean, is this Vince waking up and going, I finally caught up to the internet chatter. Raw will always be my number one. I'm the man behind Raw. So SmackDown, we're going to do a change up after WrestleMania. We're going to switch things up. We're going to pull some guys that can talk that we need on Raw. And we're going to stiff arm your booking on that side for a while. I mean, it just, what, what happened? What happened to SmackDown? I, I want to make this quick here because it is worth noting. We did have a good show where Silver King said a great show on Tuesday night. So I think that we feel good about where SmackDown's going now. But also worth noting, as we did astutely, and Silver King was the first one to bring it up, so credit goes to him on Sunday night, Instant Analysis Pod. SmackDown had really been in the gutter for quite some time. It had a a number of bad shows that kind of left us feeling not satisfied as viewers. Silver King sort of alluded to his theory as to why. Let's get into this very quickly here and put a bow on the SmackDown conversation as to why we feel like it's been so bad for the last couple months. So I said on that Battleground podcast that it started with giving Jinder Mahal the WWE title. That from there, the ricochet effect of that to the men's singles division, both WWE title and US title was nonstop. But I I rethought it, and while that still maintains and it holds true, it was really having Randy Orton beat Bray Wyatt. Because if Bray Wyatt kept the title and stayed on SmackDown with the title, everything's okay. You know, everything, you, you go, you build it from there. But then Orton won the title. Then Mahal won the title. Orton didn't need it. Mahal doesn't deserve it. And it kind of ricochets from there. So with Mahal on the men's side and the welcoming committee on the women's side after the stup- superstar shakeup, those two things were the catalysts that ruined storylines and made it very difficult to book the entire rest of SmackDown. That's my thesis. And moving AJ Styles and Kevin Owens out of the main event picture down into the upper mid-card with the U.S. Championship. And look, I think that, Bri, it's easy to say giving Jinder the belt was what started this, and you can definitely make a legitimate argument that that's the case. But for me, it's less Jinder and more the three-month storyline with him and Randy Orton that never really caught fire, that people were never really into, right? So let's say one month you do Jinder against AJ Styles, right? At least it's something different. The same brothers interfere, Jinder keeps the belt. It was the fact that you had three, when, when no one was clamoring for one of these matches, so WWE goes, no one wants to see one? Let's give them three, at three consecutive pay-per-views. I think that's what really killed it, was a lack of interest at the top of the card for three freaking months straight with Jinder Mahal and Randy Orton. It felt, but it felt deeper. It felt like Raw was so hot with those top two storylines that they ended up melding together, which is smart, leading into SummerSlam. It almost felt like they legitimately made a decision. SmackDown, take a take a step back. I mean, is there any way that you could make an excuse for AJ and Kevin Owens, who were in a feud together, 
week to week, not appearing together. It just didn't make any sense. The welcome committee made no sense. Having Randy Orton, a noted B-side historically, in an important A-side role made no sense. I don't always want to be the conspiracy guy. I'm just trying to say there was such a long-term apathetic booking of, of feuds we didn't care about just stretched out that it literally felt like they were purposely putting the, the heat back on Raw to let it be red hot and saying, SD Live, take a break. We'll come back to you. Just my personal thought. And last note on this. I don't think it helped matters that your two Money in the Bank winners, Baron Corbin and Carmella, say what you want about them. I kind of like both of them as performers. Neither of them are really that over with the audience, so I think that's probably contributed to the malaise that we've seen at SmackDown Live as well. But again, good show on Tuesday night, and all of us are pumped, as we're sure you, dear listener, are as well, for Cena Nakamura coming up next Tuesday night. Now, Brian Campbell used the word apathy and apathetic, and those are not words you generally hear associated with the man whose name is on the marquee, the hyper-energetic and frenetic, the great Brian Campbell. And that's how bad SmackDown had been, but Bri, for as bad as SmackDown had been, New Japan Pro Wrestling has been as good. Now, I know that you are firmly entrenched right now in the Mark Zone. You're downing milk of Marknesia. You are drunk off of it, my friend. You are pumped up. The floor is yours. Remember that fat kid, Augustus Gloob and Willy Wonka? Like, he just couldn't help himself. He dove into the Chaco River. For any level that I was the last few weeks into NJPW, which started as, like, the fingers dipping in there, just taking a lick, just started to dunking my head. I am now living underwater right now. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous to the point that you do want to hear the sounds that have been coming out of me the last four or five days? (laughs) That's my feel spot just going off left or right. I cannot put forth how much I am being changed as a wrestling fan by dialing into this NJPW 2017 G1 Climax Tournament. I've been a little bit in in past years. You know, check in, check out. I've never lived the journey. This is feeling like the equivalent of when I was like 21 and took a two-week vacation and followed the band Fish around. And then somebody else is like, hey, you know, the, the, the Revive Dead is going on a run. And you follow a band <laughs> from city to city where you know the set list is going to be slightly different, but for a hardcore fan, it's going to be different enough to make it worth it. Somebody may look on the outside and go, hey, Campbell, the last six days you watched about 47 and a half hours of NJPW wrestling on an iPad sneak in your room. Isn't it the same thing? No, it's brilliance one after another. When I say it's almost changing me as a fan, it's changing my expectations. And there's times that I've texted the Greek himself and been like, I don't know how to properly put this into words. Maybe it's just the inner pure markdom of me just jumping out of my chest. But I feel high watching these matches because I'm so dialed into the energy, to the passion. And ultimately, in the end, the thing that wins me over on NJPW is how much in this tournament, both wrestlers in every match, whether it's the bottom of the bracket, because look, in both the A and B block in this tournament, there's a couple guys that are obvious sent in there to lose in the long run. And, 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 and what are they called in the French lexicon, Brian Campbell? The Joberts. And <laughs> every single one of them, to be honest, in every single match are pouring out the jar. They are leaving it all into the ring, showing you then that every match matters. One, very important showing you how much they sell, how much they put into the match when pretty much every match ends with both guys laying on their back, sucking wind at a rapid pace, where young boys, the, the young wrestlers, come in and put the ice packs on their head and neck, my neck, my back. I mean, it's it's <laughs> like, it's absolutely insane how much they put into it to then make you as a fan dial in. And in the end, here's here's really the thing, okay? We all love wrestling for a lot of different reasons. I love the pageantry. You know I'm a 90s WCW guy. I love 
putting the microphone in the hand of a guy and getting out of the way, letting him do 15 to 20 minutes. But do you know what the G1 tournament is all about in this case? It's all about wrestling, which in the end is what really matters, right? Like we all love certain things about wrestling, but the reason why we're into wrestling is for the wrestling in the end. And this NJPW tournament has a way of making the wrestling always the most important thing at every single time and every single space. I mean, I could give you another 30 minute rant. That sounds exactly like the one I just gave you, but it all ends on me just popping out of my shoes for the fact that like, it just matters, right? It, it captures that part of you of when the wins and losses used to matter of when things are like, it, it just, it's the focus is on where it needs to be. So that's me getting fired up. I do want to talk about a couple little tiny things that's so awesome about this, Nick. I want, I want to hear your part right, on buddy. this, too, because let's just talk about the announcing, all right? We put over Kevin Kelly and Don Callis and what they add to it on the shows they're there. And you could say what you want about that there are shows they're not there because this is such a grueling schedule, this G1. There's like one day off a week for about, you know, a month and a half. You hear that term a lot, Jim Ross, saying, you know, he tries to add pepper to the steak. What these two U.S. announcers are doing in NJPW are more like seasoning the meat, but letting the meat be the focus, right? They're not pouring the sauce all over like WWE does where it changes the flavor. That balance right now is absolutely incredible, Nick. Do you get that same feeling? I do. And, and here's what I think the difference is between the New Japan. And and let me just say this. That was an awesome rant and kind of touched me and hit me in the feel spot here because I feel you're marked them for this. And it's totally deserved, right? Remember maybe three weeks ago and I had a similar <laughs> It, indeed, it is still real to me, damn it. It's definitely still real to you. I had this moment similar three weeks ago when I was just going on and on, waxing poetic about the greatness of New Japan Pro Wrestling. The G1 tournament is absolutely sick, and we'll delve into a little bit more, but specifically what you mentioned with the announced team. What they do so well, they're not about using the platform to put other crap over. And that's not a criticism of WWE and the announcers because... Oh, it is. It, it really is, though. No, no, but, 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 but it's not... Yeah, it, it is of WWE, but it's not of the announcers themselves, right? Because they could put you in the chair that Corey Graves is in and Vince McMahon's in your ear saying, say this, and you have to say it. So it's not their fault, the human beings. It, 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 it's the machine, right? It's the machine that's rolling on. So a match with, you know... Let's just say it's 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 Zack Sabre Jr. and, you know, I, I don't know, maybe Sonata, right? Let's just say that's the match. So it's not two of the huge um, main event talents, right, in New Japan Pro Wrestling. Kelly and Callis will call that match like it's Omega Okada, the main event of Wrestle Kingdom. Whereas in WWE, if you get a match between two mid-carders, two lower mid-carders, they may use that as a platform to put over the pay-per-view that's coming up, or check out this special on the WWE Network, or talk about garbage that's not related to the match. And this is what I like about New Japan. They treat it like it's real. Like, and WWE, it's not like WWE is out there hitting you over the head, hey, it's fake. But New Japan, they announce it like it's a sporting event. So, like, I haven't watched the Zack Sabre Jr. bad luck foul A match yet. I don't even know what's happened yet. It's either last night or it's happening tonight. We taped this on Wednesday. But, like, the New Japan Twitter feed... How's it's a styles clash? Fale is so huge. Saber's the smaller technical guy for the submissions, and they really sell it like that. It's like a football team. This team can really throw the ball. This team's got a great pass rush. How the hell is it going to go down when they meet up on Sunday? So they really do bring that legitimate sport feel to it, Bry, that it feels real, and when you're watching it, the thing that makes you mark out is that you suspend your disbelief, and for a moment there, you're not thinking, hey, this is fake, I wonder how what's going to happen here. You are caught in the moment, and you become fully invested for those finishes, Bry, and that's why I think those announcers do such a great job because of the philosophy behind how they call these matches. 
Well said. Silver King, you're popping up. You're popping over there. No, just I wanted to add one note there. The other great thing about it is they know that English-American fans are watching the G1, and it might be either their first time watching New Japan or it's the only time all year that they watch New Japan. So they're not only doing every single thing that you guys said, they're also giving me, as someone who is one of those people, the entire backstory for these guys entering the matches. I now understand why... Kenny Omega and uh, Tama Tonga are at odds. I now understand the history of, uh, what's his name, Minoru Suzuki, this badass older guy. I actually, cool. I actually understand what has led into all of these five singles matches every single night, and sometimes it's nothing. Sometimes it's Yano and, and how he's silly and you know all, all his stuff, but I at least understand what I'm watching. I'm not just going, oh, this is a really good wrestling match, which would already keep me you know, glued to the screen. They're gluing me even more. They're super gluing me to the screen because now I'm invested in it because I actually understand what's happening. Got so silver king with the super glue. Sticky paste. Yeah, what's good? This is getting a little bit gross here. One more thing on the presentation: the way the referees are portrayed in this G1 is everything I love about wrestling. Like at times they're like manhandled, but they always undersell it, oversell it with like the 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 little asterisk there that there's so much on the line that a referee would never disqualify one of the guys. So it's like everybody kind of knows that, but what it opens up the door is the referees get, they get physical again. It reminds me a lot of like prime NWA 80s heyday where Tommy Young, the all-time great referee, would would to break a, somebody trying to cheat, would get in there and climb on the guy's back and pull his arms away. You see that a lot in here. You see Red Shoes Ono being a star among stars. You talk about the unreal timing this guy has, the comedic ability, the the way to put over his own gimmick, but without letting it get in the way of the match, the way that he's on the being the elite series, you know, at times in, in hilarious little ways. The way that these guys are, the way that that works out and the way it plays, everything about it is fresh, new. It touches on all the things we mentioned. Let's get into some of the things that have stood out. You know, best matches, getting used to some of these new wrestlers. Nick, what is it? What is, do you have a, a, right now a clubhouse leader for match of the tournament? Most of us have watched about through July 23rd. We're almost just about caught yep. up. Um, for me, I think it's the main event of night one. Naito and Debushi, I think, may have been the best match so far. Either that or Omega and Suzuki was also just freaking terrific. I mean, anytime you got Kenny Omega, who's obviously, you know how I feel. I think he's the best wrestler on the planet with a great story in that match. Plus Suzuki, who's a really good stiff worker. They told a tremendous narrative in that match. That was terrific. But I, I don't think I've marked out harder for a final 10 minutes of a match in quite some time than Naito Ibushi on night number one. So for me, that's the best match of the tournament so far. That was incredible. We, we definitely, we touched on that last week. Abushi and Sabre got, got together since we last talked, had an incredible one, but that Omega Suzuki probably stands out for me. It was incredibly physical, but what you saw, and this is what I love about this tournament, is a lot of these guys have such different styles. A, a guy who's great like Kenny Omega will be able to, and it's, and, you know, historically, everyone's been able to do this style-wise. When you get in there, adjust to what your opponent was doing, whether you're Shawn Michaels, Randy Savage, Seth Rollins, AJ Styles, whatever. But to see Omega adjust to these guys' gimmicks, too. I mean, the theme in that Omega-Suzuki match was, can Omega, if he's going to get caught in a toe-to-toe war with this former MMA guy, this badass Suzuki, Minoru Suzuki, whose who's head is shaved like uh, Travis Pickle and Taxi Driver. He's a confirmed psych- psycho. He no-sells every strike because he's a badass. And Kenny gets caught in that war. And then at the point where Kenny's about to come over, what, the, the Suzuki gun uh, team comes in there, including Takamichinoku, you know, and it leads in the referee. There's a big ref bump with red shoes. It ends up with Kenny doing a springboard moonsault into the crowd, which is the spot of the tournament thus far. That match was intense. And you want to talk about the opposite of that match. And you want me to put over how good Kenny Omega is. Watch the Tuesday morning match. 
Kenny Omega against Toriano. And who's Toriano? He's the comedic dude in this, 39 years old, kind of round and robust. He's kind of like Japanese version of Dude Love, only if Dude Love was this comedic heel who's always trying to punch people in the nuts and win them over. That he's, he's Santino. He's Santino, correct. He's yeah. Santino. That matches 11 minutes of performance art because Kenny bended to fit, to fit, uh, to to fit, uh, what's the His, guy's Yano Yano, Yano style, and, and, and to your point, and it's like this is what's so great about it, right? We're talking about like Omega, like we're we're breaking this down like it's real, it's fake. It's like when the Cleveland Cavaliers were playing the Golden State Warriors, and we're going, Cleveland can't possibly go up and down with Golden State because Golden State's got better shooters, and they're not going to be able to hang. It's like Omega faces faces Minoru Suzuki, he can't turn it into an all-out brawl because he can't hang with Suzuki. He's got to be a high flyer, guys. It's fake, like it's predetermined. Determined. And that's the brilliance of the whole thing is you lose yourself in the moment. And those two Omega matches, the one against Yano, the one against Suzuki, a perfect example of what we are talking about. So Campbell gave his picks for best matches. I gave mine. Silver King, what say you? So I think Kota Ibushi is just the guy in NJPW who entertains me the most in the ring. He's great. So those two matches that were already mentioned, uh, Ibushi, actually, yeah, Ibushi Naito, Ibushi Sabre. It's really tough to pick other than that, but I'm going to because I want to introduce another match into this conversation, and that's Okada Elgin. Oh, amazing. Because amazing. Honestly, yeah. man, like I knew he was good, and I've seen him wrestle before. Who are we talking about? Elgin. Yes. But Okada is just incredible. Right. Like I know Omega's your guy, Nick, and for a good reason. He's really, really good. But Okada, to me, could walk into WWE tomorrow better than Shinsuke and be WWE champion. He has the charisma. He's incredible in the ring. He doesn't look for a pinfall every time he hits a major move. Um, and that's also some NGPW style. But that match was incredible. And I thought more in that match than I actually, when I watched Okada Omega, that Elgin was going to win. They had me two or three times going, wow, they're going to have Okada lose. This guy's going to get a title shot. And it didn't happen, obviously. The one note on it, and you mentioned Red Shoes, Red Shoes and Okada. They have that one, two, two and nine tenths count. Yes, that's perfect. The closest, count, the closest near fall I've ever seen in ever, that match, right? Ever. I mean, and it's not just that match; it's the the Omega matches too. So, man, I have to bring that match up. That was great. It's brilliance folded thing. into brilliance. So there's there's matches that you you say, okay, this is the match I'm going to skip because, by the way. They're about 20 minutes each, and sometimes you look at it, you go, I'm three days behind already. Dude, you I'm can't skip. You can't. In the next day. But you know what happens every time? So Makabe and Ishii start start getting the ring. I'm like, all right, this one I can skip. No, you can't skip it. No. It's a barroom blob between two mooses, and it might not be a four-star match, but it's so stiff. It was literally like that every single match. I want to give some final points on a couple guys to put them over. Juice Robinson is absolutely ridiculous. He's guys, turning himself made- into a star, Bri. He is. This is a star-making turn for Juice Robinson. They remember him from NXT as, what was it, C.J. Parker. He was a hippie. The character stunk. He was a curtain jerker. They never put him in a match that mattered. To see the potential in this guy, he was in a match very early in this tournament, probably against really the the, wor- the worst name, the guy who's maybe putting in the worst matches. What's the guy's name? The, the old guy in his late 40s. Oh, I disagree Rob- with that. Yuji Nagata? Yeah, and... and- Robinson was at a level that I never thought was possible for him. It made you say this, okay? If he's a failed NXT mission for WWE, how many other guys in that locker room? And I know you could easily say, imagine Sami Zayn in, in, in G1. Imagine Seth Rollins. Yeah, they, they'd be ridiculous, right? How many other guys, though, in that locker room, if 
given this same chance, could do what Juice Robinson is doing right now, elevate guys lower than him to higher level matches, be able to hang on an even level with guys like Suzuki with all, you know, these incredible matches. You know, Michael Elgin, I, I love Big Mike. I love watching him. If he's in NXT, he's probably the third member of Heavy Machinery, for all we know. You're almost not allowed in WWE to attempt a four-and-a-half-star match if you're not being pushed in a prime spot to be a four-star match in this tournament. And maybe this is just the best of what MJPW offers for the whole year. And it probably is. But in this tournament, it feels like everybody's trying to give you that four-star match. And that's what I'm talking about. Robinson, an incredible project. Sabre, we talked about how good he is. But they allow him to be his unique style. Nick, that style's not for everybody, right? But they put it over so much from the commentary to the other wrestlers. I think Sabre's got bullet club potential when you look at how cocky he is. I think he could fill in if Kenny ever leaves down the road. Am I overplaying it right here? I don't think you're overplaying it at all. I think you're 100% right, and you know I'm a huge fan of Zack Sabre Jr. I want to spin this forward a little bit here. I just want to give my take on what's going to happen here in this tournament, uh, specifically in the B block and then in the finals, and I said this to Bri a little earlier. Um, Omega and Okada have not lost yet, right? So they've each won their first three matches. They are facing each other in the finals of the B block. I think there's a a shot that Omega and Okada will both win every match going into that final B-block match. My prediction, Omega beats Okada, Omega goes to the final, Omega loses in the final to Tetsuya Naito, who wins the G1, and at some point before Wrestle Kingdom, Naito puts the title shot at Wrestle Kingdom on the line against Omega, Omega wins to get it back, and Omega goes over Okada at Wrestle Kingdom coming up in January. Um, Obviously, we've got time before all of this transpires, but I think that seems to be maybe the direction that they're going in. Can can you do that? You can put up the spot you want? I think that they do that every year. I'm not 100% sure, but I know for a fact that Omega put it on, on the line before Wrestle Kingdom after winning the G1 last year. I forget who he did it against, but that definitely happened. And I think it happens every year in New Japan. And, you know, Brian, yeah. You said you got the Kenny man crush. I got a little bit of that out of Sonata. How badass is Sonata, right? Trained by great my hair. guy, the great Muto, Kenji Muto, with the incredible hair, great body, but he's so raw and spectacular. He's not a formed product yet, right? That guy is the gets the BC uh, uh, feel spot activated right there. Our last topic as it regards New Japan and the G1 because we just marked out for a solid 15 minutes on it, right? Um, This is not us hating on WWE to say this, and I think I can speak confidently for the three of us here. New Japan right now is better than WWE, what we've seen recently. Um, You cannot compare the G1 to Battleground or even Great Balls of Fire, which was a good WWE pay-per-view. I think the G1 has been better. We're not saying that for dramatic effect. I'm saying it because it's true. As a wrestling fan, I've enjoyed it more. Now, there are things that WWE does better than New Japan, and this is the best that New Japan has to offer over the course of a year. But what WWE did, we'll get to it coming up in a moment here, the opening segment of Raw with the four guys in the SummerSlam main event, that's storytelling on a level and promo cutting that New Japan just does not have. So New Japan, in-ring, Is it better? Absolutely. But I still love the soap opera elements of WWE, the story elements. So I think that there's room for both of these. It doesn't have to be if you're listening, oh, they love New Japan, they hate WWE, or vice versa. We're wrestling fans. We want to be entertained. Right now, New Japan's bringing more entertainment to the table. And ask yourself this question. Randy Orton, if he were in New Japan Pro Wrestling, if he were in the Bullet Club, he would probably be the most overheel on that roster, and he'd be putting forth amazing matches night in and night out. It's not Baron the Corbin. workers' fault, right? It's WWE's Baron fault. 
could be a Baron Corbin could lead the Bullet Club. And here's what it comes down to, though. What we should say in the end is there's obviously things that WWE can learn from NJPW to improve their product. And obviously, they already have, by the way, right? They brought in Gallison Anderson. They brought in AJ. They brought in Nakamura. There, there's, there's moments of real strong style that maybe weren't there as, as much in your face. But I think the one thing they can learn, and I know this is not a new point, but stop scripting everything. I know that the Triple H generation, which is the new movement behind the scenes, that you're seeing better things in NXT, things that give you hope. I mean, if the, if the Cruiserweight Classic didn't give you any hope last year as a tournament, that's basically like NJPW Junior, right? That should have given you hope. Just take away the script and let these guys be who they are. Because what I see when I watch the G1 are people finding out who their true character is inside of the ring and they're allowed to be that and then when you are yourself in the ring i have to believe it helps you be yourself in promos and everything else there pull back the reins wwe it's time you should be rooting as a listener as a wrestling fan for new japan to succeed because remember the best time in the history of this industry the attitude era was a direct result of WCW whipping WWE's ass in the ratings and Vince McMahon and Stone Cold Steve Austin and everyone else saying every Monday night we need to go out there and not just hit a home run, but we need to hit a grand slam. The best thing that can happen to this industry is for competition to emerge so we get two products that are both trying their best to entertain us on a weekly and in New Japan's case with the G1 guys on a daily basis. Now, we added this to the third part of the main event. We have already hit it in painstaking detail. We knew that it was going to be the Fatal 4-Way main event at SummerSlam, Lesnar, Strowman, Reigns, and Joe. So that was not a surprise, although announced on Raw. We talked about it last week. So let's just quickly touch on the segment that opened up Raw, because Brian Campbell, I thought it was pretty damn terrific. It absolutely was, you know, and, and you can go to the well too often on, on calling for the Joe Bears to come out and break things up. And once again, Unfortunately, I love Gallows and Anderson more than anybody. But if you're Gallows and Anderson, you are summoned from the locker room. That means that that's what they think of you. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. But let's not get in the way of the middle of what was another <laughs> great segment, putting your best foot forward, putting the ball in the hands of the people who make the fuel spots activated and getting out of the way. This was WWE at its best. This could be the match of the year. Um, Silver King, three notes before I throw it to you. Number one, I still don't think Roman Reigns is a heel, but that was the most heel promo he's cut in his entire career. Like, if you dropped me down, if I hadn't watched wrestling in a couple of years and I had never seen Roman Reigns, and I watched that promo and you said, is this guy a heel or a face? I would say he's a heel. So I still don't think he's a heel. I just think he is what he is. But that was a heel promo, and it kind of hit me in the feel spot. I liked it quite a bit. Number two, Samoa Joe had has been on fire in the ring, on the microphone. He's been the best performer out of these four, with all due respect to Braun Strowman, who is the subject of my third note. I popped so huge for Strowman going, I don't care if it's a two-on-one. I don't care if it's a triple threat match. I don't care if it's a fatal four-way. All I'm interested in is piling up bodies. Holy bleep. <laughs> like, I literally, I got a little chub when he said that. Like, I was, a, I, I was a little excited. Like, unzip the pants. When he goes, I just want to pile up bodies, I felt like a schoolgirl. I'm like, oh, this is so great. Uh, I marked out for it, Silver King, so I really liked that segment on Raw. What's funny is what I liked was immediately following that, when Roman Reigns rolled his eyes and is like, come on, dude, that's so corny, and then just punched <laughs> him in the you, face. Will you please shut up? Yeah, <laughs> like, I loved that, and what you said about Roman is right. Like, we've been saying this, hey, this was the best promo Reigns has cut like three times since WrestleMania now. Guys, he's getting better on the mic, and that's what we really wanted from him, and that is partially putting this match over. I am not going to come near saying 
this is going to be a match of the year contender. I really don't think it's going to be. I think it's going to be really entertaining, and we're going to love watching it, and we're going to talk about it for 30 minutes on the next podcast after it's over. But it's my most anticipated match of the year, at least until they announce Styles Nakamura. Um, I just want to pile up bodies. I think that might be the best line of the year. I love me some Braun Strowman. And that does it for the triple main event portion of In This Corner with Brian Campbell. And with that, Bri, this is my cue for you to play the sound that you're about to play. We've got Hero <laughs> or Zero coming up. Drop that zero get with the hero. So just to take you behind the curtain a little bit, so we're on a Skype video call here. I can see that Bry not ready to hit the sound, so I have to give him the heads up, the verbal cue to hit him because we were not making eye contact here. I now hand it over to the Honorable Judge Silver King, Adam Silverstein, who will officiate this best of five edition of Hero Zero. Remember the tally is 2-2 between me and the Brian Campbell. So Silver King? So we're starting off with maybe what we really should have talked about on SmackDown, which was the return of Y2J, Chris Jericho, in uh, setting up a triple threat U.S. title match in the main event, thanks to Shane McMahon. Styles went over there as the new U.S. champion in what I thought was a tremendous match, and it was the third change of the U.S. title in just 19 days. B.C., hero or zero on what we saw on SmackDown with Jericho and the entire U.S. title picture. So it's a weird answer because the U.S. title picture bookended the show, and it was a really good episode of SmackDown. Much needed, obviously, like we talked about. Jericho's return didn't leak out, so it was a fresh, real moment. It caught all of us off guard. Jericho, fantastic in that. Everything about that screamed hero. The match itself, pretty damn good for free TV. Those This is awesome chants were warranted. Very good three-way between three guys with history who are very capable of giving you a good three-way. But in the end, it's a zero, guys, because why are we watering down the U.S. title that much that we're going to hand it off three times in like a week and a half, including once on a house show, which when done on its own is a fun move like we talked about when part of a triple foray of handing it back and forth makes no sense. You know when I defended this practice when it was Charlotte versus Sasha Banks to end 2015 or 2016 and it was on fire and that feud was building something that I said, historically, we're going to reference this. This makes sense. These are your two best by far. Right now, yes, my answer is fueled by the fact that they've done nothing good with this with this program, but it's a zero for just passing it back and forth. What does this belt mean now? It means nothing. Yeah, you know me. I love a good three-way. And as it concerns the United States Championship, um, the Jericho return is a hero because Jericho's awesome, and it's a testament to the greatness of Chris Jericho that he's only gone for a couple months and he gets the hero's return when he comes back and everyone's still popping for his catchphrases. So great to have Chris Jericho back. Hopefully it's going to be in a regular role because he adds a certain amount of gravitas to the proceedings whenever he's out in the ring. Bri, you stole my thunder, buddy. So Silver King, just go ahead and give BC this point because I've got nothing to add. Because um, you should be popping when AJ Styles wins the U.S. championship, except we've seen so many changes. It's like they legitimately don't know what the hell they're doing. It feels like they're doing the the paper, the paper, the toilet paper booking you know, on, on a pen 20 minutes before the show. Oh, let's give AJ the belt back. Three times in a couple weeks here. Are you kidding? Like you want to talk about the title being important? Make it feel important. Don't pass it around like a cheap you-know-what. That can't be happening here. A zero overall for uh, for the U.S. title Man, I, I wish you didn't concede that point because you had a real chance to take it by disagreeing with BC, who was wrong there but gets the point anyway because Nick gave it up. You're welcome, birthday boy. Moving on, the Shield, or at least two of the members of the Shield, had a mini 
mini reunion on Monday as Rollins and Ambrose took down The Miz and The Miztourage in a handicap main event. The bros hugged it out in a major way and were pumped up after the win. But Ambrose refused the shield fist bump. Nick, hero or zero on this ongoing storyline with two guys who would otherwise be in the main event in some manner on Monday Night Raw? I'm going to give an answer that's kind of unfair here, but I don't really care because I think you like, right? You like the Ambrose Rollins thing because that's kind of cool because the shield was really cool. So it's not a hating on that. I found myself, though, sincerely, around 1035, I'm like, it hit me because I was kind of thinking, what's the main event of the show? And then I remembered what it's going to be. And I'm thinking, wow. We're getting a main event with The Miz and Dean Ambrose and Bo Dallas and <laughs> Curtis Axel. And what did I find myself wanting to do? Going to New Japan World and watching the G1 instead of that crap in the main event. The match was not bad. It was actually was better than it should have been. The post-match angle was not bad. My issue with it was it closed the show. And it had this viewer wanting to turn it off and watch Okada against Elgin uh, from a couple of days ago on NJPWWorld.com, then it had me excited for the main event and subsequent angle. So a zero for me because I found myself thinking, I don't really want to watch this right now. Uh, this is a full hero. All you have to do is watch the way the crowd popped at the end of this match when the Shield brothers celebrated and to see the emotion, the raw emotion in Dean Ambrose hugging Rollins, like giving in in that moment, like, I don't care. We just beat these guys and we did it together and we did it against the odds. And then that swerve of his, of his emotions coming back down, the adrenaline going away and him going I still can't trust this guy because the line of the night on Raw, and yes, that opening segment was great, but the real line of the night was in the locker room earlier when, when Ambrose basically said, no, we're, you know, you have to look out for three guys. I have to look out for four. It's, it's this storyline of distrust connects dots in ways that WWE doesn't always do. That's why it's a hero, and it's still on track to lead to a Dean, Dean heel turn eventually. Which will which be really awesome when it happens, by the way. I'm so going to pop for it, and I don't like Dean Ambrose. So it's a full hero. Give me the point for all those reasons. Yeah, that was an easy point for BC. I don't think it was. It, but, it, okay. it was. You, you, and you had a point about not having it close the show because it really didn't. It should. It, it's you a want, terrible main event. You don't want to see those guys. But here's the problem. They have the other four main eventers basically on the show in one match, and they're not going to run back a triple threat. All so, right, Silver King. Thanks for rubbing salt in the wound. There, on there, to the next There one. was only so many options there. BC gets the point. And we're going to stay with BC here. On Raw, what did we see? We saw Enzo versus Cass again. We saw Cass squash Enzo again, and we saw the big show intervene only to get squashed by Cass again. Did WWE make a mistake with this split as neither Cass nor Enzo are going anywhere right now? Here are zero BC on what you've seen so far with this storyline. It's going to be quick here. Couldn't be more of a zero. You did the same exact thing two weeks in a row. No wrinkle. No, hey, it looks like we're going to do the same thing for the second week in a row. And then there's a late swerve where Big Show gets off of his fat butt and rallies. No, there was none of that. It was a squash match. And then Big Show putting his nose in the business. And then he gets beaten down. And then, you know, Big Cass does the black power sign like uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the 68 Olympics on the way out as people boo. The only thing it's accomplishing is getting him heat. But in this case, you're just ruining what was a hot tag team. Nobody cares because of how much it's been stretched out, how much it has. They haven't given us a reason to care. It's to the point now where and I never thought I'd say this because I am an Enzo guy. I love Enzo. Interviewing Enzo is one of the best experiences a journalist you can do because he's a genius in what he's able to do. And he really is, guys. This stinks 
I almost want him to be like the hype man on the new day now. I don't want to see either of these guys now. Both have been watered down and devalued from this. It stinks. It's a zero. Um, I like how you skip past the nation of domination with the, with the power sign there, and you went with the, the 68 Olympics instead. I'm gonna throw um, throw a bone to Farouk and uh, and Savio <laughs> Vega. Savio wasn't it with the Godfather and and D'Lo Brown and the Rock um, in the awesome nation of domination. Like Savio Vega, that was a bad call by me. Savio was in Los Bariquas, of course. But for this, you know what I think of. You know the Metallica song, For Whom the Bell Tolls? The bell tolls all right, and it tolls for thee. And thee is Enzo and Cass. And I feel like when Cass was down, it's like the line from that song, take a look to the sky just before you die. It's the last time you will, because it's over for Enzo Amore. You can't have Enzo come out to the ring and cut a promo talking about how he's going to shut Big Cass up week after week and then do a match where he gets absolutely no offense because what you have with Enzo now is a guy with zero credibility. But forget about Enzo because Enzo's not the main star in this feud. The guy they're trying to make a star is Big Cass, and they are failing at it to such a degree that it's almost as if they sat in the room and said, how can we screw this up as much as possible? I know. Let's insert the big show to it. And much respect to Paul White, a legendary figure in this business, a no-doubt Hall of Fame performer. Bottom line, though, time has passed him by. You want to put heat on Big Cass? How about having him attack someone the fans care about in the year 2017? No one cares about Big Show. So when you have this extended beatdown sequence and people are sitting on their hands and they're not making any damn noise, doesn't it hit you at some point, WWE? Hey, maybe this isn't working. Maybe we need to do something different instead of literally trotting out. This would be like the week after the terrible This Is Your Life segment. They do it again with Alexa Bliss. They do the same exact thing. Pull the damn plug. Pull the goddamn plug <laughs> on Enzo Cass and the Big Show. Let Big Cass do something else. Send Big Show to pasture. Send Enzo Amore to 205 Live. It's not that freaking complicated. It's not working. It sucks. It's a goddamn zero. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Easy point for Nick there. He no, almost... Let's, hold on. Let's just take time out because I just ripped <laughs> WWE for rolling out the same, the same exact rundown that they did the week sure. before. Sure. Basically laid out what I did. He just added some some Costos Greek pepper on it, and you're going to give him the point. Hey, he he committed. It's like a, he committed the crime they did, but that's all. I'm he, guys, he, I'm an on-air talent. I'm a professional BS artist. That's my job. He was passionate. He quoted lyrics. He got me going. He got me laughing. He wins the point, <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing. He almost lost it before he even started because Savio Vega was in the Nation of Domination. Was he? I don't think he was. Yes, he was before he got kicked out by Farouk, who wanted to make it bigger, badder, better, and blacker. Wow. I think of Silver and King. Then, wow. And then Los Bariquas started. This, so. this will, by the way, and I'm going to go on record as saying this will be the only time I'll ever be corrected by anyone on the history of wrestling <laughs> on this podcast. Go ahead. Anyway, moving on. So it's 2-1 BC, but this is going back to Nick. Jason Jordan made his singles debut on Raw, looking like a tweaked version of his uh, American Alpha character but he definitely showed some potential future heel tendencies there. Also, he debuted a new finish that was kind of like a Saito-release neckbreaker. Hero or zero on the renovated Jason Jordan neck? As of right now, it's a zero. But I have hope that it will turn into hero, so it's two separate answers. His promo backstage was so bad, and it's not his fault, and I tweeted this, and Brian, I'm going to back up something you said. 
WWE is so overly scripted, right? Jason Jordan cuts a promo, and I'm looking at the dude's eyes, and look, I talk professionally. Like, I'm in the entertainment business professionally, so I like to think that I have a modicum of understanding of performers and how people perform and whether they're into something or not, right? Jason Jordan doesn't believe the crap that's coming out of his mouth because no one would say the stuff that's coming out of his mouth. Like, that hackened forced promo about how he felt about Kurt Angle being his dad, blah, 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 this and that, like he's Robert frickin' Frost, he's not a poet, someone wrote that for him, just go out there and be real, like, what's so hard about that, so, the promo stunk, again, not Jason Jordan's fault, I thought the writing was terrible, I think that he's a good performer, so I don't have any problems with the match, I kinda liked his finisher, as of right now, it's a zero, but it could very easily turn hero if they keep developing some of these heel tendencies. Let's see where they take it. I'm not ready to throw dirt on the grave of this just yet, but I did not like the initial offering of Jason Jordan, comma, son of Kurt Angle this past Monday night. Uh, this was a hero, and it'll be an easy point for me because the reason why that promo worked so well was because Jason Jordan sold that there was something underneath the surface that was eating at him. It wasn't just I have butterflies for this moment. He looked off camera plenty of times, and they zoomed in on his face, and that was a harbinger of this guy – isn't really on board with being Kurt Angle's son in the long run. I like the repackaging. I like the the Biggie Langston adjacent singlet that he wore. I like that he came out and wrestled like a heel right away, which set the tone that there's going to be trouble down the road, that Kurt Angle's not going to be happy with the actions of his son, and this angle not to, to pardon the pun, will work with Jason Jordan becoming a heel. They gave you that tease. This is going in the right direction. You're, you're lost, bro. Silver King, you better have your head screwed on straight here when you announce the winner. Yeah, BC got that point, and it's 3-1, and it's 3-1 going into the last one. So we can see if you have a two-point answer out of you, Nick. Uh, the women's title picture on SmackDown is now set, but on Monday we learned that Alexa Bliss will defend against Bailey at SummerSlam after beating Sasha Banks in the number one contender match on Raw. How do you feel, BC? about WWE tearing Bailey down and building Sasha up only to feed her to Bailey to get the big win and the rematch. Was it good storyline development, which would be a hero, or a poor booking decision, which is the zero? Uh, if it stands the way it is, it's a giant zero. It's an incredibly poor booking decision, and unfortunately, it's par for the course on the direction of the women. The great rant that we all kind of gave each of the last two weeks would be true. How the heck do you put over Bailey here after you work so hard to revive Sha Sasha? There's really nothing else to say about it unless this ends up a triple threat and there's another wrinkle, and the wrinkle is Sasha and Bailey blowing up on each other. Whatever it's going to be, if it stands the way it is, there's nothing else to say but a zero. How dare you? How could you? Bailey does not matter at this moment. Don't try to slip her back into my DMs like she does. You just you just played yourself. Congratulations. Um, I disagree. And in fact, I may slide into Bailey's DMs because she's looking <laughs> mighty good these days. I'm a big a big Bailey fan here. And there ain't no stopping us now. Na, 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 na. I'm back in on Bailey. I was out on Bailey after the Extreme Rules match um, when she put over Alexa Bliss and had that terrible promo uh, backstage with Corey Graves. I think they've done a nice job rehabbing her character, though. And I actually found myself, crazy enough, rooting for Bailey in this match, like actually rooting like it was a real sporting event. And I was pumped when she went over. And by the way, that was a damn good match, Bailey and Sasha Banks. And by the way, it's going to be a good match at SummerSlam, I think. Bailey's going to get her comeuppance. Bailey's going to go over. The crowd's going to pop because it's that NXT-style crowd in Brooklyn. Everyone's going to love it. And I think I'm back aboard the Bailey train. Come here, baby, and give big dog handsome Nick Costos a hug because I'm feeling it right now. I'm all aboard the Bailey train. Hugs for everybody. Nick deserves a hug. Nick deserves the point. But he doesn't get the win because he conceded the first point in Hero Zero. It's your own fault. No one else to blame.
Happy birthday, Brian Campbell. That uh, that birthday gift Three is on the house. So Nick knows, Nick knows, though, even he doesn't believe his own words about Bailey. If you listen to the <laughs> show, I no real Greek here. I'm looking Come at on. him. I, I'm looking at him. He's. I swear. Listen. And in all, in all truth, listen, obviously I put on sometimes because we all do. It's a little shtick. It's a wrestling podcast. That's part of it. I legitimately am into the Bailey storyline. Legitimately am. And I will be rooting for you and I will be at SummerSlam, Bri. I will be rooting for Bailey to win that match against Alexa Bliss. And you know I love Alexa Bliss. Bailey looking great these days. I'm a, I'm a big I'm a big Bailey fan. I might, might just be a hugger at this point. All right. Let's slide into the old DMs, Brian Campbell. Tell the listeners how to get involved. Hit me up at B Campbell CBS at the Costos if you want to go Greek and at Silverstein Adam. Guys, DM season is open. We love to hear from you for the people, by the people. Slide right in. This is your segment to have your say. Let's start off with at David Matt 8, David Matthews. He loves the show. We appreciate it. It says, Nick is a funny MFer. You're right. And also, <laughs> you forgot handsome. I'm also very handsome. David just rewatched the Shawn Michaels heel Montreal promo on Bret Hart and also on Hulk Hogan this following Survivor Series 97. And he loved that. And he's wondering what our favorite promo of all time is. Brian Campbell, since your name's on the marquee, you get to go first. That's a, that's a great way to start it off. There's been much more humorous promos. There's been much more intense promos. But there hasn't been a more important promo than in wrestling history and in my wrestling history than, of course, July 7th, 1996, Daytona Beach, Florida, Bash at the Beach. We know the impact of Hulk Hogan turning heel and joining the NWO and what that had. But that impact wouldn't have been as good had he not nailed that promo and again it's not the all-time best delivery or all that but he nailed it he absolutely nailed it well the first thing you gotta realize brother is this right here is the future of wrestling you can call this the new world order of wrestling brother he absolutely put over that he was angry at the fans. He tied in the history with Vince and billionaire Ted and the Hulkamania gimmick running out, running its course of time, which we're going to get into in about 90 seconds. So get ready. That was great. But the line of the night from that promo was Gene Oakland. And if you don't love this next line, then stop listening to our show because you don't love wrestling. Look at all this crap in this ring. Yes, Gino, that is that is my, that is like the exclamation point. Gino selling it. I just love that. That's the best promo of all time. It still matters to me. It's still real to me. It still hits me right in that feel spot. And, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't Gene say after he references the crap in the ring, he references the biggest crap piece of crap in the ring being Hulk Hogan. And Hogan just yeah. no-sells it and goes on with this promo. And what made that promo especially great, and I watched it live, and I remember being like catatonic sitting on the couch, <laughs> and I couldn't believe it, was the crap in the ring really made it because it was the visceral fan reaction where, again, it's fake, but you're reacting like it's real. Hulk Hogan has turned heel, and people are throwing all this stuff in the ring because they can't believe what they've just seen, a seminal moment in professional wrestling history. Now, for my favorite promo, I really bandied a number of them about because I have a lot of favorite promos. You know, I think you could go with the CM Punk pipe bomb promo, which was obviously tremendous. Some of the old rock promos, some of the original Austin what promos are great. But for me, March 30th, 1998, Monday Nitro. I said on my first ever appearance on In This Corner that my favorite Chris Jericho run of his career was in the cruiserweight division in WCW when Chris was really starting to come into his own as that over-the-top heel character. And he was in a feud with Dean Malenko. And what really worked about this feud was Dean 
was the Iceman. He didn't talk. He just came out and wrestled. And you had Jericho, who was this flamboyant, over-the-top heel who wouldn't shut his mouth. So it was a fascinating dichotomy between those two. And Jericho came out, and he said, Dean Malenko's the man of a thousand holds. Well, I'm the man of a thousand four holds. And he proceeded, Brian, I know you've got some sound here. What did Chris Jericho say? Malenko, you claim to be the man of a thousand holds, but I counted, and you know about 60 but I know 1,004, and I wrote them all down. Here we go. Hold one, arm drag. Hold two, arm bar. Hold three, the moss-covered three-handle family gradunzel. <laughs> so, so what's brilliant about this is every with every three or four holds that Jericho had mentioned, he would bring arm bar back into the equation. So he hold 558. Armbar! <laughs> they went to commercial. I remember in my old basement, 39 Iris Avenue, Long Island, New York, and Floral Park, flipping between Raw Nitro, as I did in my teenage years, every single Monday night, and making sure, because they went to commercial with Jericho still going, and I remember 15 years old thinking, are they going to come back to this? Like, how are they going to end this? They come back from commercial, and Jericho is still in the ring. And that's the first time I think I had ever seen that before. Still reading through the list. I think Malenko came out at the end and got a huge pop, which just showed you how good Jericho was. Because Malenko never talked, but Jericho got him so over because Jericho was such a good bad guy. That promo has always stuck with me. Absolutely hilarious. Chris Jericho, arguably at the peak of his powers back in 1998. For me, guys, I, you know, I was considering some of the best promo guys of all time, Flair, Rock, Macho Man, Paul Heyman. I mean, how many Paul Heyman promos could you put in a top 10 list? But it came down to three. The Pipe Bomb was there. The Austin 316 you know, at uh, King of the Ring was there. My number one promo is the one that they use to teach wrestlers today how to give promos, and that's the Dusty Rhodes oh, yeah. Hard Times promo. Great choice. You're talking, uh, about, you're talking about a guy who was the peak promo guy of his time, that's even including Ric Flair, just delivering something that was picturesque and perfect. So for me, it was that Dusty Rhodes hard times. I think Silver King gave a great answer there. And David Matthews, I think we gave you three great answers, if I'm being honest. Next up in the DMs, from uh, at I am Jimmy Fox. Now, this is a very long DM. I'm going to summarize it. He references the... Putin-Russian storyline that we referenced last week in regards to Rusev, Lana, and Cena. Of course, a couple years ahead of its time, given that in the real political climate, Putin much more of a heel now than he was a couple years ago, at least in the United States. And his question is basically, do you think that the McMahon's relationship with President Trump, of course, Donald Trump is a WWE Hall of Famer, WrestleMania's four and five held at the, at the what's the name of it? Was it Trump Plaza, Bri, back back at WrestleMania 4 and 5 uh, in New Jersey. Um, and obviously, Linda McMahon is on Donald Trump's cabinet, uh, small business, and that whole deal here. So do we think that out of respect for President Trump and the relationship that they have, that they are not running with the Putin storyline anymore because you feel like it's a slam dunk in today's political climate? What do you think? I've never even thought about this. It's kind of brilliant, right? It's brilliant. Jimmy Fox, uh, shout out to you. I told him back over DM, this is brilliant. We talk Sunday night. I got all emotional basically being like, you know, how could they, how are they this dumb? Not even explaining what's happening, killing Rusev's character, kind of killing Lana's character. This makes a lot of sense. I mean, Jimmy Fox referencing, we're not that far removed from like Rusev riding a tank into WrestleMania, right? Against the All-American Cena. I you got to connect the dots. We know the McMahons were large givers to the Trump presidential fund. We know Linda's job now. We know that history. This makes a lot of sense. I think it's pretty brilliant. I think uh, 
I think, you know, this guy, Jimmy Fox, is trying to audition for a spot on the show. I mean, this guy's bringing it. So, Jimmy, I did some research because I wanted to see how this timeline works out. I'm going to try to make it very quick. May 2015 is when Rusev returned to being Bulgarian, and that coincided with the whole controversy with Lana. Uh, He fractured his foot. Um, You know, him and Lana were on the outs, and then Dolph Ziggler kind of got involved. That's when that happened. What's interesting is that Trump announced his bid to be candidate for president in June 2015. So exactly a month later, um, the dates do line up. I don't think the rest of it makes that much sense, and here's why. Trump was not really believed to be a legit candidate for president at the time, and June 2015, he surely wasn't formulating a cabinet that would have included Linda McMahon. So I think it's really interesting, and is it plausible? Yes. I just don't think it is actually the reason. I think the well, second I mean, part he, makes more sense. The fact that they're not doing it now, I think, potentially makes sense. That I agree with. All right, then I think we can move on to the third DM question, and this comes from the prophet, Dingus McGee. You may remember Dingus McGee from this podcast last week for seeing the return of the great Kali. He was the one that asked, what did you feel spot for Kali? I said, I'd rather have another 9-11 reference to great Kali. Well, we got the great Kali back uh, in the Punjabi prison match, and then, of course, great Kali not at SmackDown, so let's just have that be a one-off for the great Kali story for another time. But Dingus, his question this week Guys, he's saying SmackDown is about America versus the world. And we did have a lot of American themes this past uh, Sunday night at Battleground. Xenophobia running wild. At SummerSlam, Super Cena versus Jinder. But it's basically a four-on-one if you look at the Singh brothers and the great Kalina. This is assuming Cena ends up facing Jinder because we've got the match next week against Shinsuke. So it's a four-on-one. Great Kali, the Singh brothers, and Jinder Mahal against John Cena. Cena's getting beaten down. America's going to lose. Who comes to his aid but the man formerly known as Mr. America, who once came out to real American? Will Hulk Hogan potentially return? Is it time for Hulk Hogan to return to WWE? The answer, of course, is no, but I will give you guys an opportunity to make your case. The answer is yes. You heard me on this, uh, not on this program because of the time when we launched it. You've heard me on other programs speak for a long time that it was going to happen at WrestleMania because yeah, you were wrong then and you're wrong now, buddy to return to the fold. It makes a lot of sense. SummerSlam has always been their patriotic card, right? The big, I mean, they, they treated this past uh, week's uh, pay-per-view like it was happening on July 4th. The reason why I believe it'll make sense. One, because it's no like time has passed. No one knows. So no one that watches wrestling today pretty much knows wrestling when Hulk Hogan wasn't in it. He will be back eventually, whether it's SummerSlam or next year's WrestleMania. Why not do it now? Why not align him with Super Cena? Because what is actually Hogan doing right now? He is bored. (laughs) I mean, Terry's just sitting on the sidelines opening up his surf shops. Smart call on Dingus the second time in a row to kind of foreshadow this makes a lot of sense because what is Vince McMahon? He's a patriotic SOB. This is the time, brother. Nick, it's going to run wild all over you, whether you're ready or not. Uh, right? I'm not ready for it. I don't want it. And I think you can get away with a lot in today's day and age. I don't think you can get away with the racism that he was caught with on tape, dropping the N-word. I, this It's unacceptable on a million different levels, and that's why I feel like you will see to continue distance between WWE and Hulk Hogan. I do not think it's going to happen. So, Bry, with the DMs now in the rearview mirror, and again, at B. Campbell CBS, at the Costos, at Silverstein Adam, hashtag in this corner, keep sending them in. We'll keep knocking them down. We now move on to the new segment that we're all super excited for. It is Pay-Per-View Rewind. <laughs> Thank you. 
I love the old school WrestleMania theme music there. So 1996 Uncensored, the Doomsday Cage match, right? That is what you chose, Bri. And for some weird reason, maybe you were in a masochistic mood at the time when you chose that. Uh, I didn't love the choice because I watched the match live when it happened and it was absolutely terrible and I had to live through it again for a second time here. But we all watched it. Silver King watched it. I watched it. You watched it. You go first. Give us your take on this match, the Doomsday Cage, Hogan and Savage against practically the entire WCW roster. March 24th, 1996, the Tupelo Coliseum in Mississippi, the main event. Two reasons why I picked this, all right? Number one, for all we talk about the all-time worst moments in wrestling history, the kind that we wish we can go back on the archives and the network and scrub away that can never happen, things like the Shockmaster, the Gobbledygooker, uh, Katie Vick, the Hogan Warrior feud from 98, Al Snow eating his own dog, Lita and Edge having sex in the ring, Vince saying the N-word, this match should be right in that conversation. And for some reason, historically, it never is. People act like it never happened. It's arguably, not arguably, the worst match, the worst game-planned, executed, written, and performed match in wrestling history. But number two, why I put it up there, it's a really important moment in that fueled the change that really changed the wrestling business. This was the last WCW pay-per-view, March 24th, 96, that Hulk Hogan appeared in the Hulk Hogan ketchup and mustard red and yellow before that turn. And look at this timeline. March 24th, this awful pay-per-view. Two months later, June 27th, Hall and Nash debut on Nitro. One month later, I'm sorry, that was May 27th. One month later, June 23rd, King of the Ring, Austin 316 breaks out. Less than a month after that, July 7th, Bash at the Beach, Hogan turns heel, NWO starts, the business forever changes. This was almost the end of the old era. And as we know, guys, 94, 95, 96, some of the worst wrestling we have ever seen. The only re the, the main reason why the NWO turn was so successful and had such an impact, you have to go back a couple months to see that because the Hogan gimmick wasn't just dried up and in, in, in boring, it was dead. And when you have Terry Bollea behind the scenes, who I protect a lot in terms of his wrestling legacy, don't protect the N-word and all that stuff, of course, protect the wrestling legacy, he had creative control, and this may have been the most abusive use of creative control in the history of pro wrestling to involve so many big names and force them to job in a match that really had no rules or setup, looked like they were making it up as we go along. But guys, it had an impact. This was... The, really the end of an era on this night. Sever it right there, and the new era began right after that. What is your reaction now, guys, going back, your initial reaction in seeing this slot? Okay, so here's the best part about what you just said. You referenced Hogan and this being the most egregious um, use of control in the history of wrestling. I don't even think if you made Hulk Hogan's greatest hits real of the five worst decisions he's ever made with creative control with the book, I don't even think this makes the top five, which just speaks to how he ran roughshod and helped run WCW into the ground. Now, I've got a couple points on this abortion of a match, which was terrible on a million different levels. Not even so bad it's good, so bad it's bad, and so bad it's insulting. And I'm going to run down a couple of them here. Number one, you've got the classic WCW garbage of people not being on the same page because they never paid attention to the little things, and it's things like that that always set, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of anyone with half a brain, sorry, Bri, WWF, WWE was always better than WCW. The first thing, you got Michael Buffer in the introduction, calling Hogan and Savage the mega force, but you've got the announced team with Tony Schiavone, Dusty Rhodes, and Bobby the Brain Heenan calling them the mega powers. How 
how difficult is it before the show to sit them all down and say, can we have some uniformity here? Like, could Buffer not say it because of a copyright infringement? And if that's the case, why were the commentary team able to say it? Why is he calling them the mega forces? Did he summer fest it like Jeremy Piven and just botch it? Why did that happen? That's number one. Number two, it was like state propaganda commentary. Like, they were captives by North Korea and had a gun held to their head. And you've got Tony Schiavone and you've got Bobby the Brain Hayden and you've got the American Dream Dusty Rhodes. And what are they doing, Bri? What are they doing? It's great television history. I've never seen a match like this on television. I've never seen anything like this. This surpasses a Super Bowl, a World Series, anything you want to name. This is tremendous. <laughs> like Bobby the Brain Heenan sounds like he's saying that with at gunpoint. Like a gun is being held to his head and saying, if you don't say this right now, we're going to pull the trigger. Bobby the Brain Heenan, ringside for some of the greatest moments in the history of the sport, is forced to put over this dreck like it's the Super Bowl. And he even says it's bigger than the Super Bowl or it's an absolute piece of flaming garbage. The third point, you've got the introduction of the ultimate solution. I guess that's what you want to do. Anytime that you can create an allegory to the Holocaust and the attempted genocide of the Jewish people with the final solution and then call it the ultimate solution, obviously you've got to do it. Why? Because of <laughs> WCW. Then you take Zeus, who wasn't relevant for a decade, and you introduce him into the match because all WCW ultimately was was a second rate copy of WWF and what do you call him? It's what the Germans would pronounce the gangster. The gangster! <laughs> oh, so we're going to have the German theme with the ultimate solution. Let's call Zeus the gangster. Oh, it's the gangster coming to the ring right now, who of course couldn't work a lick and couldn't work a lick in that horrendous movie No Holds Barred either. Then you have booking issues with the match. You have an extended sequence when they break out of the cage with the Taskmaster Kevin Sullivan and Lex Luger. You know who would have been better for that sequence and maybe would have made this a decent match? Oh, I don't know. The Nature Boy Ric Flair and Arn Anderson, but you wasted them in the first part of the match, which was brutal. And that first part of the match <laughs> took place on the third level of a cage. And go back and watch it. You see Flair stepping down on that chain link, and he's thinking to himself, you see it etched on his face, holy you-know-what, <laughs> this doesn't feel safe to me. Like, this was unbelievable. Let's just lay out the stupidity of the layout. They Most of the pay-per-view happened in a ring in the center of the arena. The corner of the arena, though, against a back wall, they put a second ring with three cages on top of it and scaffolding. You want to talk about all those memes going around of the Punjabi prison, how nobody in the crowd could see through the fence? Nobody in the crowd could see this entire match. It's just absolutely ridiculous. So, I mean, I think I've, I've said everything I need to say. Horrendous on a million different levels. Um, poor Savage. Like, Savage has to play Hogan's <laughs> lackey, and, and Hogan isn't half the performer that Savage is. A bigger box office draw, but not half the performer. Ric Flair, arguably the greatest of all time, is forced to play fourth or fifth fiddle in this match. You got Z, Z Gangsta and the ultimate solution. I mean, just utterly and utterly abysmal with abysmal commentary and abysmal booking. That was WCW in a nutshell was the Doomsday Cage match, Silver King. That was... It was the worst match I've ever seen. I mean, I'm talking worse than Lana Naomi. Worse than anything we've seen recently. It was the worst match I've ever seen. If it's a Doomsday Cage, why were they able to leave it so easily? I'm not talking about they escaped. They just walked out onto the scaffolding. Easy. There were frying pans used. Where did they come from? Why were they under the ring? Didn't make any sense. They held a portion of it, Nick mentioned, in the main ring. Was that to actually, as you guys kind of said, allow fans to see a part of the match? Because they were in the main ring for about three minutes for no good reason, because then they had to realize, oh, we have to go back to this other ring for the finish. Because WCW. That's Hogan, Hogan and Savage 
notice that this is the end of whatever they've built up, uh, the match to, to end, the storyline, and they start walking out of the cage to win like you would a cage <laughs> match. And then Savage goes, oh, crap. And he I'm runs back in to make the pin. I'm yeah. supposed to pin someone here. Hogan's halfway out the cage. Savage literally quickly turns around like, like a little kid, runs back in, gets a pinfall after already hitting the finisher you know, three minutes earlier. And, of course, and he pinned Flair. Flair had to be the yeah. one to do the job, of so course. Flair has the job, but the setup to that. And first of all, there's 17 oh, guys God. in the ring, and no one should break up that pin. Number two, there's 17 guys in this match, and you have one referee, Randy Anderson, and they're wrestling all over the arena. The rules were expressed by Shivani early that you, you have to pin each guy in each cage to advance, yet no one's going for a pin until the end. Hogan uses a chain, like a little girl's keychain that he finds in his in his shoes. He uses that to tie the cage door together and keep half of the heels away. And while he's ridiculous. doing it, they're watching him do it. They're not stopping him from doing it. They're like, oh, oh, Hulk's having some difficulty here. Let's give him some time. Art Anderson's wrestling in tennis shoes, black sweatpants, and a black shirt, then disappears with Luger and Flair for half the match, then comes back in wrestling trunks, which makes no <laughs> sense. Then the ending was Luger went to hit Flair, or Flair's holding Savage's arms. He goes to hit Savage. Savage ducks out of the way. Luger, for some reason, pump fakes and pulls up short so he doesn't hit Flair, realizes he screwed up, then hits Flair anyway, <laughs> then acts like it's a mistake, and then you end, like Adam said, with that botched finish. There's about, I have 23 notes that I don't have time to go through of, of just awkwardness where it made no sense why we were here and why this happened. I do want to say one thing. For some reason, Miss Elizabeth and women were part of this. And you got to go back and you got to just say, though, late 90s Miss Elizabeth, so hot. So hot. So, so hot. And, and, and rest in peace to both of them, obviously. She doesn't want to be there. Her life was falling out of control, but it was almost as hot as like Kelly Kapowski moving on from Saved by the Bell and going to 90210 and becoming bad girl Valerie Malone. She was like that level hot. Yeah. So I'll give her that. But yes, this is par for the course to a degree, Nick, in what made WCW bad. But this was worse than anything ever. Like, there's really nothing you can compare this to. I mean, the booty man, Brutus Beefcake, slipped frying pants through the cage. There's nothing to compare this to. The worst spots, the worst match ever. Meltzer gave this a negative three rating. I'm going to be honest. I didn't know he did negative ratings, so I looked it up. And there are matches historically that have received negative five. Some matches you know all and well. This, I got to say, it's a negative five. It's as worse as you can possibly rate it. I agree. Worst, worst, ne negative five. Whatever the scale goes down to, that's what it gets. Silver King agree? Yeah, no, not even a question. What I'm curious about, Nick, is what are we looking at next week? Oh, the Silver King with the hosting hat on, setting me up there. Thank you very much, buddy. And I am going to go the opposite direction of Brian. Brian purposefully gave us a pile of crap, which was entertaining because we got to destroy it, and I'm sure you enjoyed listening to it. Um, I'm going to give us what I consider to be the most underrated match in the history of professional wrestling, the main event of SummerSlam 2001, Stone Cold Steve Austin defends the then WWF Championship against the Olympic gold medalist, Kurt Angle. It's a match that never gets talked about in, in terms of history. Probably, I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to say why. I'm not going to spoil it in case you've never seen it. But this match does not get the historical due that it deserves. Stone Cold Steve Austin, Kurt Angle, main event, SummerSlam 2001. And for some historical context, Austin is the heel in that match. And Kurt Angle is the face. Now, we got to get the hell out of here because the fantasy football guys are going to kill us because we're taking up all their time in the podcast room here. So let's quickly get the feel spots here. Brian Campbell, you're up. Go ahead. Came from the G1 tournament, Kenny Omega against Tama Tonga, two members of the Bullet Club there. I popped in this moment more than any other thing that happened in wrestling this week because they're both part of the Bullet Club, but of course, Kenny's part of that, the elite, with, of course, with the Jacksons, with the Young Bucks, and to see Tama Tonga, who is a star on the verge of breakout in his own right, go 
F the G1, F the Elite. Why are you not No, and actually legitimately drops the F-bomb during the match a couple times. It does it in such a real sense that you believe they're really mad at each other and something's happened. It was a storyline that played out through all the match. The match was fantastic, physical, athletic. And then in the end, Tama sort of unwillingly makes nice. But you know, there's unpleasantries brewing in the future. Well booked, well handled. I popped like a young Mark fan like I should. Silver King, your feel spot. So for me, it was the talking smack after Battleground. As bad as Battleground was, Kevin Owens on Talking Smack's incredible. And while he's kind of given his standard, you know, hit job to Renee Young and, and running his mouth, he calls himself the elite, which was not an accident. It's one of those things where your eyes open and you go, ooh, like he just did that. Like I'm excited to see what's going on. So it was that combined with the fact that Renee Young and Daniel Bryan have kind of rebelled against WWE a little bit for canceling Talking Smack, and they sent out a tweet after SmackDown with a new show called Smacking Talk, which is quote-unquote exclusively on tout. Uh, They kind of ripped some angles that WWE is doing on Raw. I enjoyed it. I found it very entertaining. Um, I think, by the way, that you're a mark if you think they're rebelling here. WWE absolutely knows what's going on with that. There's no way that they're actually actually doing that. Of course, but it was fun. Um, I feel bad. Silver King tried to defend himself there. I I, I, I crushed him. It's okay, Silver King. You were wrong, buddy. It's all right. (laughs) My feel spot, um, how about a Twitter beef between John Cena and Roman Reigns? Cena retweeting something Reigns wrote, wrote, and Reigns tweeting him back saying, hey, big dog, like your Twitter tough. Let's see what happens in the ring. What this is is a foreshadowing for what I think you will likely get is the main event of WrestleMania 34, Roman Reigns against John Cena. Hot damn, the crowd will be electric for that one, Mr. Brian Campbell. I'm guessing that hit you in the old field spot we've seen that though we've seen this beef on twitter before and no match just be careful with activating your field spots too too red and fiery See, all right? that's the and best part about the field spot i can't control it it just gets activated when it gets activated and that does it for this week's edition of in this corner with brian campbell brian what else do you have coming up this week on the podcast for people to get excited for a uh, big boxing show previewing Adrian Broner, Mikey Garcia this weekend. Great guest, Pat Militich talking about Mayweather McGregor. We got Victor Ortiz talking about his comeback on Sunday. MMA side, the John Anik, the man, the voice of the UFC, previewing Saturday's Jones Cormier 2, UFC 214 card. You don't want to miss it. For the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, I am handsome Nick Costos. Until we catch you next week in this corner, Pro Wrestling Edition, the Brian Campbell has got two words for you. We out. <laughs>